Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday fireside chat uh, with uh, John Shriver. I think that's what we're going to call it now, especially in a day that is 10 degrees outside. And uh, today is going to be a spectacular uh, meeting. We have both John and uh, Alyssa Bennett, who heads our Division of Adolescent Medicine, uh, and I think you'll hear a lot of uh, very important information about COVID and eating disorders. And I'm sure John is going to bring us up to date with all the changes in the midst of, of uh, the uh, the Omicron crisis that I call. I, I do want to say a couple of things that, are, that I think are important. The, the first one is that we are uh, in solidarity with our colleagues at Tufts. Uh, we learned yesterday that that entire children's system is closing in July. Uh, these are our colleagues who are providing care for children. Uh, it is very unfortunate. I uh, don't know the circumstances, but you know we're certainly going to reach out to them and, and offer our uh, whatever we can, or lending hand to them. Uh, so, if you know, if you know people, they can certainly call us uh, for opportunities in terms of things of uh, maybe services that we need. But it's uh, it's just terrible that in the midst of COVID, we would close an entire health system like like the one at Tufts that has had a very rich uh, over 100 years, I believe, John, of uh, of being a pediatric center. Um, you know, this, these are the tough times. Now, in re relation to COVID, I also want to. Uh, you know, give you a sense of hope. I know this is tough. I mean, it's 10 degrees out, it's middle of January, it's winter. Uh, we were in the midst of a, a just a, a dramatic crisis and uh, with, with COVID affecting many of you, your family members, your children, uh, the school systems, and, and, and people are tired. Uh, people are very tired. It's two years into this. Um, but, you know, hang in there. We, we are resilient. Um, and this is one of the reasons, uh, you know, we, we have John. I think he always gives a sense of hope and optimism. And I think you you'll listen from you'll hear from Alyssa Bennett also what how she deals with, you know, some of the most difficult kids with eating disorders and how we can actually do this. Uh, I, I want to thank you for what you do you, every day and each of the areas that you work, uh, either taking care of children in ancillary areas in the school systems. I know many, many people log in for many areas, um, and I give you a sense that we will make it through. Uh, hang in there. Uh, spring is coming. Summer's coming. And this is longer than we actually bargained for, but uh, again, we've had historical sense where in the past, uh, in, in the wars, uh, our predecessors, they made it through, and we will too. Uh, so hang in there, a sense of optimism, and now let's turn it my, to my friend, uh, Dr. Shriver, who's going to give us an update. John? Thank you, Juan, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's um, a nice winter day today, and uh, it's great to see everyone here. Um, I think there's a lot going on. Let me let me get right to it because, to Juan's point, I actually think there's a, a lot of um, positives in this current crisis we're seeing, and I'm gonna, I'm going to show you some data currently uh, suggesting that we're actually moving to a better place over the next month or so. Uh, this is the United States year three Omicron. I mean, it's a nightmare. The whole country is just full of community spread, and um, uh, it, it is what it is. Now you'll notice the Northeast, which was horrible, it's beginning to turn back to a lighter color in Maine, and, and um, I'm going to show you some data suggesting that we're peaking out, and I, I think this is a really important thing, because between so many people getting Omicron and so many people being immunized in the Northeast, particularly New England, we may be moving to a herd immunity situation and have actually a much better spring, so I'm going to show you some data suggesting that's where we're going. Now you'll see here, this is the U.S. new cases, really just from the CDC, and, and um, you'll see it's going down. Now, I don't want to say this is for real yet, because I think what this is representing is the Northeast leveling out and then, then Martin Luther King holiday. 
But that said, I'm worried that this is going to start going up again as other parts of the country that are under immunized take off with Omicron. So let's watch this carefully, but it, it, it's promising. Uh, the hospitalizations nationally, unfortunately, uh, are way up there, 150,000 people. But you'll see that may be leveling off as well. And particularly in New England, I think that's leveling off in the Northeast. So some, some optimism in the trends, as I said, because we're not performing as one country right now, geographic differences are huge. I do anticipate there'll be huge outbreaks in some of the under-immunized parts of the country. Now, increases in hospitalization by age is very important. This still remains a disease of um, older and high risk. And these are hospitalizations. This is January. And you'll see this is, this is um, rates per 100,000. This is 70 and above. And even immunized um, uh, elderly are more at risk of being hospitalized. Now, that said, you'll notice that the rates of hospitalization, this is the 40s, this is the 50s, have gone up in the, in the so-called younger age groups. So just because you're 40 doesn't mean you're not going to end up in the hospital quite sick. It's just at a lower rate than elderly. And the problem is when you infect millions and millions of people at this age group, you will have significant numbers of those people hospitalized. So I think it's important to recognize it's a numbers game. It always has been uh, from the beginning. And the numbers are still skewing to the elderly being hospitalized, but lots of, lots of much younger adults as well. Now, is Omicron less lethal? Um, I think it, it may very well be that certainly both the anecdotal and data-driven thoughts from South Africa and other places, I think I showed you that last uh, two weeks ago. The challenge, again, is the numbers. And you'll notice the American death rate is shooting up. It lags the outbreak. And the problem is just so many people are infected. Even a lower virulence virus will, will kill a certain number. So we're at 2,000 deaths a day again in the United States. It just boggles the mind. And I, I want to step back. We've just become hardened to this. And you have to step back. And all of us probably know people who've passed from this. And all of them have families. And it's, it's an unacceptable death rate. And I, I do think I try to stay focused on that because you see all this misinformation around the bottom line. We're out there to try to prevent deaths and drive this number down. I mean, that really is what we're about. Now, vaccinations in the United States, you know, I usually, I, I would say meh, you know, M-E-H. Um, it's better, uh, you know, and fully vaccinated in the 70s. Um, elderly, better. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it's probably not enough to reach herd immunity. So between this and everybody getting Omicron, it may very well be. And it's interesting when you look at the, you know, we've been, shall we say, a bit disorganized and chaotic in this pandemic. I'm being kind with those comments. But, you know, you look at the Chinese model where it's basically we will have no cases. And they're giving Sinovac, which is an inferior vaccine, to 1.5 billion people. And there is a worry now that the Chinese model actually may be incorrect because they're going to have a susceptible population going forward and COVID's not going away. So I, I think at the end of it, it may turn out that vaccinating as many as we can and then just sort of Omicron ripping through may actually end up being a strategy that works. We will all find out. Now, one of the problems where we do lag seriously is in sequencing the isolates. This is 10% uh, of all isolates being sequenced in Iceland. New Zealand and some other countries are really understand what variants are circulating in those countries. The United States, shall we say, is at the bottom of the developed list. We are not sequencing enough of the viruses. 
to know definitively you know, what variants are in what part of the country. So this is a problem. I, I remain puzzled by this. We have the ability, the resources, and the technology to lead the world in sequencing the isolates, and we are not. And it puzzles me, and it provides difficulty for us, the providers out there, to really understand what's going. We know it's mostly Omicron now, but it really would be nice if we were ahead of the game in understanding when new variants were coming in or not, when we're not. Um, Omicron in Connecticut. So uh, you can see that you know, we really took off thousands of cases a day. And um, I will tell you that it appears that that has peaked. Uh, I, I don't want to go out too much of a limb because it's just a few days now. But it looks like uh, we're going to be in a better place in the next few weeks. And let me show you why. We've gone from a tw almost 25% test positivity to yesterday with 16.6% test positive. Still terrible. But it's down almost 10%. That's a lot, and I think it's real, and I think it represents us peaking out and probably beginning that decline. And I'm going to show you some other countries that Omicron first, uh, how that decline is working out. Now, I, this is the map, and you may be puzzled, like, what the heck is that town up there that has no COVID? Well, it's actually Canaan, Connecticut. I actually live, you know, right across the border there. And North Canaan's terrible. That's North Canaan. But Canaan, they have like 500 people live in this little town, and it's Falls Village is what it is. And, um, you know, it's a very nice little town. I guess somehow they don't seem to have much COVID. But anybody who was curious where you want to go for the weekend, <laughs> Falls Village, Connecticut, good place to be. Uh, deaths are increasing, as I mentioned previously, but it's a much lower proportion to hospitalizations than we used to see. And, you know, they lag our hospitalizations. And so, you know, we do have uh, about 20 or 30 deaths a day in Connecticut. I would say we've controlled it through immunization and in public health practices. We're probably more effective at treating hospitalized COVID as well. So, you know, it's okay news. It's not great news, but I, I think it's okay. And look, look at this. You know, these are data, you know, these are just factual, and you can tell people this, and they just give you that look. But in Connecticut, this is as of just a few days ago, so the most current data I could find, um, there are 1,800 people hospitalized, okay? And of those who have COVID, almost 68% are not fully vaccinated. So these beds are filled with under-immunized people, and it's just nuts. I mean, just think if we had a, everyone immunized, those beds would not be filled. And frankly, this Omicron would be burning through us. We just wouldn't even notice it because nobody would be in the hospital or very few people would be in the hospital. So it's just tragic. These are preventable hospitalizations and um, it's kind of where we are, but it is what it is. But these are very important data as we talk to our patients. Now, other things I want to point out that are just stunning. These are data from Connecticut. The, the latest is from January 12th, the best I can do. But if you're vaccinated, a lot of, there's a lot of breakthrough, but there's so many people vaccinated, it's only around 4.5% of vaccinated are getting infected, clinically infected. So it's not huge. If you're unvaccinated, you have a 3.5 chance time of getting COVID and an 18, 19 times greater chance of dying. In Connecticut today, if you have COVID and you're unimmunized, 19 times higher chance of dying. I, I look at that and say, I'm getting immunized, you know? And so I think as we speak to our patients, these are facts, these are data, and people need to wrap their arms around it and tune out their misinformation. Almost a 19 times greater chance of dying if you're unimmunized in Connecticut today from COVID. Massachusetts, the behemoth to the north. Um, 
where I live is important to look at their data because they're going to trend New England. And the fact of the matter is um, it's going in the right direction as well. Their percent, this is how they present the data. It's not as nice as Connecticut. But they have 17.4% test positivity. That's way down. They were around 25% 10 days ago. That's going down. The hospitalizations are flat now. They're up a little bit, but not much. And, and so it looks like they're trending down. I'm going to show you data in another a second. But look where the cases are in Massachusetts. These are young. Age 50, 20 to 50 are the majority of the new cases. And again, because it's so many people, some of that group are, are getting hospitalized and some of them are dying. So this is now a young adult <coughs> disease in New England. And then if you can see the seven-day trend in Massachusetts, it's really important, just like us, the cases have plateaued and are beginning to decline. So I think, and the hospitalizations are, are, are just starting to plateau out and the deaths have been modest compared to previous peaks in Massachusetts. So this is the most populous state in New England. So I think it shows us that New England is moving to a peak and decline of Omicron in the next few weeks. Uh, this is the world. There is another world out there. You know, you want, you, we watch American news now. They don't talk about the world. You have to watch BBC to find out there is Tonga. You know, otherwise in American news, it's all, we're looking at our navel. But the rest of the world, there's a lot of COVID. And um, it's uh, concentrated, of course, in America, but South America and Europe. And I'll show you some data there. We have no idea what's going on in Africa. It's just lack of data. Big outbreak in Australia of Omicron. And supposedly, you know, um, we have no idea what's going on in Russia. Um, China, this is real because they they just have decided it's a zero case policy. And, and I think, again, I worry that that could backfire um, as a public health strategy because COVID's not going to go away and they're going to have to keep this up. How long can you do that? And then here's what countries that are about a month ahead of us. Look at the UK. So they've peaked and it's rapidly declining. And I think that we're going to be here in about four weeks in New England. We're going to be just like this, like the UK, and in a much better place. And they're starting to loosen up a lot of their restrictions now um, after uh, the Prime Minister stopped partying. He was able to make some decisions to, uh, to cut, up, cut back on some of the restrictions. Um, okay, let's get into some new data. Booster shots. Uh, I had my shots. I don't want to get a booster. You know, Boosters are really important because if you had only two shots with Omicron, uh, it didn't work as well. And if you had boosters or you had Omicron and a booster, you got really, really high titers. So boosters are important both if you're a two-dose vaccine person or if you get Omicron because the immunity wanes to natural infection. And these are really nice study. Um, we're going to stay away from the green. That's with the old um, original Wuhan strain. This is Omicron, okay? And these are people with two doses, and you can see it not so good. Here's your booster. You see there's the booster. And wow, great neutralizing antibody titers to Omicron. So you've got to get boosted. Two doses isn't going to work. This is really interesting. These are people who are infected and then got one dose of Pfizer booster. So you can see um, over time, this it's just not terrific. It's very much like two doses of Pfizer. You boost an Omicron infected person and they make fantastic titers. So again, hybrid infected and booster is probably the most effective immunity that we're going to see. Natural infection alone wanes and is not going to be adequate to prevent reinfection. So 
important data, and, and I know the MMWR has some stuff about natural infection plus boosting as well, is quite efficacious. And um, what about effectiveness in children? We're waiting for younger kids, and this paper just came out. It's very important because it works in adolescents. 445 cases, over 90% efficacy in, in preventing disease. Uh, it was remarkably efficacious, 98% effective against ICU admissions in adolescents, and um, seven deaths occurred all in the unvaccinated group, zero deaths in adolescents who were vaccinated in this very nice controlled study. It works. And in fact, here's even more important data. If you happen to get hospitalized and you're an adolescent, but you're partially or fully immunized, your likelihood of having any serious illness, mechanical ventilation, anything, is dramatically lower than if you're unvaccinated. So if you're unlucky enough and you're vaccinated and you get hospitalized as an adolescent, you're very, very likely to recover and do fine. If you're unvaccinated, not so good. Uh, in invasive mechanical ventilation, death, um, uh, uh, seven out of 407 died. So uh, these are fantastic data of the efficacy of the vaccine and preventing serious illness. I see this, and if I had teenagers, I would be running to get them immunized. The risk of myocarditis is so minuscule compared to this, um, and the efficacy of the vaccine in preventing disease. So great data for showing our patients the vaccine works. Breakthrough infections elicit potent, broad, and durable neutralizing antibody responses. So if you're immunized, a lot of people have been asking me this. Oh, I'm immunized. I had a mild breakthrough. What is it going to mean for my immune system? It means you got boosted. And uh, these are great data. It's a cartoon um, that they had. The bottom line is if you have two doses and you get Omicron, you have a, this is the new antibody response. You boost very nicely. If you have Omicron and you got two doses of vaccine on top of it, you boost really nicely. If you have only two doses against Omicron, not so good, okay? And if you only got infected, not so good. And here, if you happen to be infected and you got a full panel of three doses, you know, two and a booster, you have terrific anti-Omicron uh, titers. And three doses alone, as we've told everyone before, that booster dose, you have pretty good titers. So the best is if you happen to have disease and then got the full uh, immune series of the vaccine, you're going to be quite well protected. So they synergize. But natural infection alone looks like it wanes, and the vaccine on top of it's important. Okay, the next thing you want, I talked to you about deer and reindeer infected with COVID. Now it's hamsters, and um, they, they can transmit the disease, because actually they use them in the lab for COVID. And these were infected hamsters in Hong Kong. And um, I, I really don't know what to do with this, but what the government in China is doing is they're going to exterminate all hamsters in Hong Kong. I, I have to say that would not be popular. It's not popular in Hong Kong. There are protests against it. People have offered to adopt the, vaccinated people want to adopt the infected hamsters. And, um, but just, you know, this virus is not going to go away. And, and it's in hamsters now, it's going to be in deer, it's, it's a zoonosis, and we need to understand that and move ahead. Understanding this virus is not eradicable. They're still trying to eradicate it, and as I said, they're, they culled all of the hamsters. It's Little Boss Pet Shop. If you want to buy pets, don't go to Little Boss Pet Shop in Hong Kong. That's a bad idea. Okay, I want you to go to a different pet store and not buy hamsters from Little Boss Pet Store in Hong Kong because their hamsters all have COVID. All right, what's the news doing? You know, uh, I, I continue, my heart goes out to Dr. Fauci. I don't understand why he's been chosen as the demon of this 
pandemic. I mean, he's just spent his life and his last two years at age 80. Why would you want to do this? Just trying to keep the death rate down. So the latest is um, One American News Network, my favorite news network. Uh, uh, I read it every day to find out what's really going on in the alternate reality world. And it turns out, well, he's invested in China. He's a bad guy. He's in bed with the Chinese, you know, blah, blah, blah. What are the facts, okay? This is out there. They're trying to make this. Well, he has a 401k that has a Pacific Asia fund, okay? I don't know. We probably, I probably have it. I have no idea. Um, and, you know, it's a 401k. He doesn't trade stocks and has Pacific Asia fund, and some of that's investment in China. And, and it's like, you know, really? But this, this is being spun as a conspiracy. You know, he's in bed with the Chinese to cause this pandemic as an evil person. It's just remarkable. I and mean, what's the end game for this? Death threats to him and his family. I, I mean, I, it just boggles the mind. Here's another one, another favorite network. Newsmax is my second favorite network. Um, and in this one, uh, Ron Johnson, another very forward-thinking, scientific-based politician, says, my primary concern with Anthony Fauci is how he mismanaged this pandemic and the arrogance of Dr. Fauci and the elite now, all of you in the audience, you have to understand, you are the elite, okay, because you're public health people or doctors, nurses, school nurses, um, we're the elite. It's just a remarkable twisting that you shouldn't trust people who are trying to get the science out there and prevent death, that in fact you're some arrogant elite creating bad things for people. And, and he blames, goes on to blame Dr. Fauci for all of the business shutdowns during the pandemic when they're caused by the virus. I don't remember Dr. Fauci going out beating on restaurants to shut them down. That's not what he did. And so I think, um, sadly, the end game of this is death threats and other things. Now, here's another one, a celebration of discredited physicians. My third favorite network, InfoWars, uh, run by Alex Jones, a very credible journalist. Um, and Alex is running the story, and they're, they're making a hero out of this physician in Maine. This is a physician, I won't, I won't give her name. You can look it up. She went to MIT, but MIT doesn't have a med school, okay, in case you didn't know that. Um, and she went to med school at the University of Mississippi. So I just want to correct that, you know, MIT educated doctor. And the, the facts are, and they're saying, well, she, she's a hero. She prescribed ivermectin, and they're persecuting her because, you know, this is like the big state making her go psych evaluations. You know, this is, what, this is what this, you know, fascist state of public health people are doing. Well, what are the facts? So I actually looked it up. I said, who is this person? And, you know, she looks nice in the picture. Well, here's what really happened in the state of Maine. So, so she's been giving um, a, a ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine without seeing patients. So they just call her and she writes the prescription. And uh, one pharmacist refused. And so she then called back and lied and said the patient had Lyme disease and needed hydroxychloroquine as an anti-inflammatory. So she lied to the pharmacist about the patient. He prescribed it, and that patient ended up in the ICU with COVID. So the state medical board said, enough at that point. You don't lie about diagnoses. And then the patient had a bad outcome. And they talked to her, and they decided that doctor, uh, this doctor, I'm sorry, there's her name, it may be unable to practice medicine in Maine with reasonable skill and safety to her patients by reason of mental illness, alcohol intemperance, excessive use of drugs, et cetera. She fell in that category because it was bad patient outcome from lying about the diagnosis. So that's the facts. It wasn't that she's a hero of alternative therapies that don't work. Um, you know, she lied. And state medical boards don't like you to do that, any state medical board. So I just want to get the facts. So the press, uh, the fringe press is spinning this as yet again persecution, but this is an individual who was not committed to science and injured a patient because of it.
All right, where are we at with the, the good, the bad, the ugly? You know, here we are in 2022, and still have that darn, uh, and now it's the 52nd anniversary edition. It was 50th when I started, you know. But um, a worldwide Omicron resurgence is burning through most countries. It is what it is. We're not going to stop it. Maybe China will stop it. We're not. Connecticut's uncontrolled community spread has gone down significantly in the last few days, below 20%. And the data, I showed you both data, Connecticut, Massachusetts, I'm very optimistic we're at the peak. And this numbers are going to continue to decline, just like the UK has. Connecticut data continue to show, you just can't get clearer than this, that the majority of our hospitalizations are unimmunized or not completely immunized individuals, over 60%. Come on, let's get this fixed, okay? Connecticut data shows if you're unimmunized, you have a 20 time more likely death from COVID than immunized people. That's a log more, okay? Those odds, not so good. Even in Las Vegas, 20 times locked. Not so good, get immunized. We had 20, we have over 20 patients at CCMC the last time I looked last day or so, but it's really important. We've tried to differentiate that. And when I was on the service last week, seeing some of the patients, it looked to me like about half of them have COVID disease and they're high risk kids and have COVID symptomatically. And about half came in with other stuff that was totally unrelated and have to be COVID positive because we screen because there's just so much COVID in the community. So once again, this shows me this is more becoming an endemic disease because we have a lot of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic children with other medical problems being admitted and happen to be COVID positive. The same way we see in RSV season or influenza season, you will have incidentally positive kids. So it's interesting and we'll see how that plays out. We have no idea if we're going to see Missy after all this. We haven't seen much um, recently, but we have no idea a month from now if we're going to have a lot of Missy. We will find out. And then Honestly, in my opinion, the new efforts by the government to throw masks and, and a lot of testing at us is kind of like too little, too late. Omicron's already, you know, blown up and taken off. It's worth the effort. But I do think, and this is my optimistic take, I do think this still represents the beginning of the end of the bad part of this pandemic, a less virulent, very contagious strain that everyone's getting on top of a heavily immunized population really will move us to a herd immunity situation. So unless the, the two caveats are, Another variant pops up, maybe, I don't know, uh, and, uh, and or we just can't seem to get our immunizations done and, and bring that up over time. So, and then the death rate will shoot up. So thank you very much for your attention. And uh, I really look forward to Alyssa's talk uh, looking at how adolescent eating disorders and COVID are interfacing. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Happy Friday. Okay, so we're shifting topics a little bit. Um, today I'm gonna cover the appropriate medical evaluation of eating disorders, describe indications for medical admission, and review how the pandemic has affected the treatment options for teens with eating disorders. Um, I'm gonna make sure that we have plenty of time for questions at the end. So this is an overview of the DSM-5 criteria, just as a reminder. Um, during the pandemic, I've definitely been seeing more anorexia nervosa and atypical anorexia nervosa and less um, ARFID. Um, so more of like the body image concerns and, and less ARFID. So we're definitely seeing a shift. To start, what questions should you ask your patient if you think they may have an eating disorder or if the parent calls and is concerned about an eating disorder? So some questions that I ask, how do you feel about your weight and shape? 
any recent changes in eating or appetite. And if you're having, you know, some red flags or the parents are concerned, asking more specific questions. When did, um, when did this start, right? When were there changes in eating or nutrition? Um, what their highest weights and lowest weights were and over what period of time if they, if they happen to know their weight? Uh, any changes in physical activity? Asking about a 24-hour dietary recall, so really going through, you know, over the past 24 hours or the prior day what they've had to eat and drink can be very revealing um, if an adolescent knows exactly the number of, you know, tablespoons um, or cups uh, of what they're eating. And then for females, asking about a menstrual history. Uh, typically in private with teens, um, I'll ask, you know, have you ever done anything to change your weight or shape, gone a long period of time without eating, made yourself vomit, taken diet pills, laxatives? exercises excessively. Um, when you're asking questions in a direct, non-judgmental way, it's surprising that teens will tell you a lot about what they're actually doing. You also can use validated screening tools to screen for eating disorders, including the EAT26 and the EDEQ. Let's review the medical evaluation of eating disorders. So I'm gonna walk you through what we do in our clinic, and I would encourage you to, to try to recreate this as best as possible in your clinic, in your um, school, whatever um, setting that you're practicing in. So first we check a urinalysis. So we have our patients empty their bladder and void, and we do this um, to help with consistent weights so that their bladder's not full. We're also using a, a UA to see, are they dehydrated because they're restricting both food and fluids? Are they overhydrated? So are they chugging water right before the visit to falsely increase their weight? Uh, I've had patients who have been doing that, and when I have them void again and recheck a weight, they lose one kilo. That's a liter of water. So um, it can make a huge difference in terms of um, when we're monitoring their weight. After they void, um, having them change into a gown and underwear, if possible, to obtain a blind weight, meaning the patient doesn't know their weight, it's not discussed, um, having them turn their back to the scale, either covering um, the screen on the scale so they can't see it, making sure your staff is um, clearing out the number on the scale because patients will turn and look and try to sneak it. Um, I understand that not all clinics have um, you know, a scale in, in each individual exam room, and so I wouldn't want an adolescent to be weighed uh, in the middle of clinic around other people in a gown and underwear. So obviously, um, you know, doing the best that you can to make sure that the weights are consistent as possible checking their height, BMI, and temperature. And then next most important after obtaining a weight is orthostatic vital signs. And I'm gonna review um, how, to, how to do this because there's, uh, there's lots of confusion and oftentimes they're not done correctly. So having the teen or young adult um, lay down supine for three minutes, checking their blood pressure and heart rate, having them stand up and rechecking at the three minute mark. Um, you do not need to check sitting uh, vitals. It takes longer, uh, it's not as helpful. If you, if the teen stands up and passes out or almost passes out when you're doing orthostatics, that means they're not hemodynamically stable and they should be admitted to the hospital. Um, and then obviously reviewing their growth chart, um, including their BMI, because their, their weight may not have changed as much, but they may have just gone through a growth spurt and they actually have had a marked decrease in their BMI. Another point about um, kind of like the weighing protocol, it's really important to educate your staff so that they know why you're asking them to do things the way that you are, right? Why is it important for the patient um, to not know about their weight or for um, you know staff not to comment on their weight after it's checked? Uh, I've had patients who have inadvertently learned of their weight when they were not expecting it and they have started to restrict significantly or ended back up 
back in treatment or admitted to the hospital um, as a result. So really kind of walking, making sure everyone on your staff is on the same page and understands um, the protocol. The laboratory evaluation uh, is done both to assess the degree of malnutrition to see if they do have nutritional deficiencies or other signs of malnutrition, but also screening for other things that can cause changes in weight, um, changes in eating, changes in appetite. There is an association between eating disorders and celiac disease. Uh, we don't know um, if it's the chicken or the egg. We I also recommend um, doing an EKG if their heart rates, if their resting heart rates under 50, uh, if they have abnormal electrolytes, uh, or if they're purging, um, given concern for potassium levels. Uh, for females, if they're amenorrheic, um, checking a pregnancy test, uh, and then checking some hormonal labs to confirm that they're not having menses because of their malnutrition and not for another reason. And then I do recommend getting a um, DEXA scan to evaluate their bone health if they haven't had a menstrual period in more than six months. This is a, a resource for you. It's included um, uh, on the EADS website. This is uh, published by the Academy for Eating Disorders. They just updated it last year. It's a guide for the medical care um, of patients with eating disorders. This table kind of walks you through what laboratory um, abnormalities you may see related to um, their eating disorder or their malnutrition. So it's a really great reference um, when labs come back a little bit off and you're not sure is this could it be related to their nutritional status or something else? When does your patient need to be admitted to the hospital? So I'm gonna review um, the admission criteria for um, our eating disorder pathway at Connecticut Children's um, in terms of some of the main ones to know about. So um, the degree of malnutrition in terms of weight. So if they're less than 75% of the median BMI or less than 80% if they're under 10 or they're premenarchal, um, then I would consider medical admission. Uh, if their heart rate is 40 or less, it's an automatic medical admission. Uh, if their heart rate's less than 45, I look at the whole picture. So is this a teen who is um, really pushing themselves? They have a support uh, treatment team in place. They are starting to gain a little bit of weight. Um, I may try to keep them out of the hospital if I feel like their trajectory is going in the right direction. Conversely, if you have a patient whose heart rate's in the low 40s and they are losing weight and they are refusing to eat, um, it's not looking good, um, then I would recommend medical admission. Uh, systolic blood pressure under 80 um, is uh, grounds for admission. Again, syncope or presyncope withstanding um, should be admitted. Um, and you can see the, the other criteria here. So the, they need to have one or more of these criteria to be considered for medical admission. Th this, these criteria and our entire eating disorder pathway are available on our website. So if you go to ConnecticutChildrens.org, click on medical professionals at the bottom right. Uh, and then on the left, there's a tab for clinical pathways. It shows all of our clinical pathways um, for Connecticut Children's, and then you can select the eating disorder pathway, which walks through the whole protocol, including the admission criteria, labs to order. And then obviously you can call one call um, if the patient meets criteria for medical admission to speak with a pediatric hospitalist. In adolescent medicine, we do not um, we do not work in the inpatient uh, setting. We're just outpatient. Uh, but if you're not sure, you always can reach out to us for some guidance. So the next question is, how do you calculate percent of median BMI? What does that mean? How do I do that? So percent median BMI is their current BMI divided by the 50th percentile BMI. So if they were, if they were continuing to track at the 50th percentile BMI, where would that be? Um, we're gonna, I'm gonna show you some examples of that. This is, the, this is the default if you don't know anything else about their growth trajectory prior to the onset of their eating disorder. So we know that not all patients 
track at the 50th percentile BMI. And so if they've been tracking up quite a bit above or below the 50th percentile, I would recommend comparing their current BMI to their pre-morbid BMI percentile, right? So where, where has their growth been before? And then another really quick calculation, if you're just like, I don't remember what Dr. Bennett said about BMI, but like they lost a lot of weight, like about how low weighted are they? It's, you can do a really quick calculation in terms of their current weight and their prior weight. So if they did weigh 140 pounds and they lost 30 pounds and they're at 110, right? You do the, the equation of 110 over 140, that gives you um, a really quick estimate of the, the, the percent of a healthy weight for them. As I said, let's go through some examples. So this patient, um, their BMI has been tracking at the 50th percentile. And then over the last you know, year, they have um, dropped quite a bit. So what I would do is, you know their current BMI is 16. Oh, I have the pointer. Oh, this is exciting. Um, their current BMI is 16, right? So the green line. But if they had continued along their regular growth trajectory, right, they should have been at the 50th percentile, which corresponds to a BMI of 19. And then you do 16 divided by 19, and they're around 84% of a healthy body weight, 84% of the median BMI. What if this is your patient's growth chart? So their BMI is normal at the 50th percentile, but they are probably medically unstable. They probably have a very low heart rate, low blood pressure, dizziness, right? All of the features and manifestations of significant malnutrition. So this is a hot topic in, in eating disorders, and there's not, there's not a consensus. Um, what I used to do is use the 75th percentile BMI as like the healthy BMI. Um, that has changed over the past few years as I've gotten more information. And I'm probably, for this patient, I would probably use like the 85th or 90th percentile BMI. But what's most important is um, how are they medically, right? So what having them gradually gain weight until their heart rate normalizes, their blood pressure and orthostatics normalize, their periods return, mentally they're in a better place. And so sometimes we actually need to weight restore patients to where their weight was before, so that until their eating disorder is, um, until they're more recovered, they're mentally in a, in a good place. And then over time, potentially supporting them with healthy weight loss, if that's um, um, something that they're interested in or if they have other comorbidities of an elevated BMI. And lastly, how has the pandemic affected treatment options for our patients with eating disorders? So we are seeing uh, across the country, we are seeing a, a marked increase in teens and young adults with eating disorders. They're presenting to your, um, to your offices and primary care. They're presenting to eating disorder programs. They're requiring medical admission. Um, there was a, a study in the Journal of Pediatrics in the fall of another uh, children's hospital, and they saw a double doubling of their medical admissions for eating disorders. Uh, we are seeing the same doubling or tripling um, here at Connecticut Children's. And so this, uh, unfortunately, we are not, there are not more providers who specialize in eating disorders. There aren't more treatment programs. So this has resulted in significantly longer wait times to get into treatment. So to get into treatment with therapists, nutrition, dietitians, to get into um, eating disorder programs at the IOP, PHP, residential, and inpatient levels of care. So here are my recommendations. Screen your patients, right? Have this on your differential when someone comes in with weight changes or eating changes and really trying to refer them to an outpatient team sooner rather than later so that they don't need the higher levels of care. Letting parents and families know that they 
are going to need to call a lot of different therapists or nutritionists before actually getting an appointment. They may need to be placed on wait lists, and that's okay. Um, but in the meantime, it's really important for you to see them if you're their, their primary care providers. Continue to see them regularly to check how they're doing, check their weight, their vitals. Um, if a patient says, "Oh, we have, um, you know, we're reaching out to an eating disorder program," it may take about a month just to schedule an intake. The intake doesn't mean they start the program. Right now, it can take several weeks up to a month before they actually have a, an opening available after the intake. And so you don't want them to have no medical care for months before they receive treatment. So um, follow-up is hugely important. And then lastly, reach out to us in adolescent medicine um, with questions, concerns. If, if you see a patient and you are thinking of placing an urgent referral, please call us via one call so that we can help triage the patient and get them in um, based on their medical status. And we also can give you recommendations and guidelines in terms of what to do while we're trying to get them into our clinic. Um, if you're not sure if the patient needs to be admitted medically, um, you can call us in adolescent medicine, um, or you can also call um, our colleagues in hospital medicine to kind of walk through um, you know, what criteria they, they meet or, or don't meet. And we have time for questions, as promised. Thank you all. Thank you, Alicia. That was uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, and and I, kn I know you've been working very hard with many young people that are, that are suffering during this time. Uh, we're seeing both an increase in weight and, uh, and a significant anorexia, kind of in the other direction. And uh, so we have uh, a number of questions here. Um, First one for you uh, f uh, from Rachel Roth's child. We use the, the SCOF, S-C-O-F-F, to screen for ED when a patient presents with a weight loss. Is the, is that, is the SCOF acceptable or should we use EAT-26? Um, the SCOF is, is a really quick screen. I think it's like five questions. So it's a little bit shorter than the other screens. I don't know if that's validated in teens like in younger kids, I know it is for adults. I think of it as, um, you know, we, we learned like the SIGI caps, you know, the screening for substance use in, uh, in medical school for adults, which is still a good screen, but it's not as specific for teens. Um, and so I think that if there is an, ac an actual concern for an eating disorder, I would use like the E26. It's just 26 questions, um, but they're, they're, it's pretty easy for them to fill out. Um, so I'd recommend um, transitioning to that. That's more of the standard. And that's what a lot of eating disorder programs are using as well. Good question. The, the, uh, the question is, is do, do we have an eating disorder program? So can you comment on, on the program? <laughs> <laughs> um, so in adolescent medicine, we provide kind of the, the medical management of eating disorders. So we um, obviously assess their weight, their vitals. Um, we make recommendations. We refer to community providers. So eating disorder therapists and nutritionists in the community or at Connecticut Children's. We do have um, some great dietitians who specialize in eating disorders. We help with um, referring them to a treatment program if they meet criteria for that. Um, but we do not, we, we provide medical oversight. We can um, manage medications, so we can do some psychopharm um, unless they're really complex, uh, have a complex psychiatric history. So, but we, we don't have an IOP or PHP um, for now. For now, yes. Donna, <laughs> this is for you. Um, I have seen multiple patients history of four to six weeks of cough, COVID-19 
test was negative earlier in the illness. However, many of these patients have positive COVID-19 PCR on repeat at four to six weeks. Can you comment on that pattern? You know, uh, it's hard to know. There's a lot of other circulating viruses right now. I know we have flu A and there's RSV out there and um, other viruses. So it's certainly possible as we move to more normal circumstances of kids mixing that they have sequential um, infections. So that, that could be the most likely. Alternatively, you know, if you test with an antigen test, which might not be as sensitive, and then do a PCR later on that might be more sensitive, you might pick it up. So I think it depends on each circumstance, but we have seen that. But again, you don't know whether they're not having sequential infections. The other thing I'd comment on, we are seeing, we do know there are numbers of kids who continue to have symptoms for weeks after having COVID. So it's also possible it's a genuine infection and they just have symptoms for weeks. Again, a positive PCR in a normal host a few weeks out of symptom beginning is probably not infectious any longer, so. There are a number of, uh, of, of questions uh, about the availability or uh, thoughts on when the when will the vaccine for children under five years of age be available? Well, actually, Dr. Salazar just showed me an MSNBC article saying that maybe it'll be soon because the FDA is going to see three-dose data. That's the lower dose that didn't work as well with two doses for kids. So it could be soon, March maybe. Um, I don't think it's going to be um, in the summer. I think it'll be late winter, early spring. Um, I do think the early uh, data from Pfizer, they used a very low dose and two doses wasn't, there wasn't particularly good efficacy. So again, they may have pulled their three dose data together and it looks good. We'll see in the next few weeks. Uh, another question, uh, John, do you think our rate is going down because there are more at home tests being done and not reported versus doing PCRs? You know, it's a great question. Um, I don't think so. I think if you look at the UK, where it just plummeted after it peaked out. I think this happens with Omicron and other countries. So I'm optimistic it represents a true decline. Absolutely, we're not counting home test positivity and, and maybe it's not really 17%, maybe it's you know 18% because of that uh, in terms of test positivity, we're just not registering those. But I remain confident that you know the hospitalizations are plateauing. All the indicators make it seem like we've peaked, so. John, is there any increase in side effects that you have seen specifically myocarditis if you get a booster vaccine, and I assume this is for the teenage population, shortly after COVID infection. Yeah, you know, I've not seen any data looking at that. Um, and I tend not to immunize right after COVID infection, because if you remember the data I just showed you, if you wait a few weeks, you boost better. I mean, again, your immune system has time to sort of process and analyze the initial infection. So I usually wait about four weeks. You don't want to wait past 90 days because then your immunity based on the natural infection has declined and you're susceptible. So between four weeks and 90 days is what we usually recommend. But I like to wait a few weeks. I mean, if you think about it, it's just another immunization. You get immunized with natural infection. You probably don't want to boost a few days later. It's not going to be as effective as if, if you wait, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, four weeks, two to four weeks. So. Now for CDC related, uh documentation. The question is here, when we talk about immunized people, are we talking about two doses or three doses? Great question. And I will tell you, there's lack of clarity on that. Most of the time it's two doses when you look at data presentation, but the way we understand vaccination now for COVID, three doses is really what's going to prevent Omicron. So it's a great question and you have to be careful depending on the data you look at. Usually it's two doses as saying, quote, fully immunized, but sometimes it's booster two. 
It's a great question, and it needs, this needs to be cleaned up rather quickly. Personally, I would just define it as three doses at this point. Uh, nationally, we've not done that, so it's a great question. Uh, this one is coming up, and I've heard a, a lot of people asking this um, in, in phone calls. And this is from Ken Spiegel. And we're, we're seeing a significant increase in numbers of adolescents for return to play. The pediatricians are getting them. Um, authorizations for, and they need authorizations for individuals with mild to asymptomatic infections, and then the gradual engagement in the sports. Have there been any changes in the recommendations, specifically given the rising numbers? A number, another great question. In fact, we just, um, Grace Hong, our uh, fantastic nurse practitioner in infectious disease, and I were just trading emails on this with cardiology. You know, the AAP guidelines are still very conservative, sort of based back in the Delta era, and the CDC has loosened up. So again, I, I sort of take the common sense approach. You know, mild disease, um, you don't have to have this prolonged period of inactivity before you go back to sports. I think if you had severe COVID, um, you know, the recommendations, the original recommendations, it's, it's weeks before you're back to heavy physical exertion actually makes sense. There, there's a disturbance in coagulability. There's all sorts of disturbances you get from severe COVID. So again, I use the common sense approach, but the recommendations from the AAP and others have not changed substantially. But the practical points, to your point, is so many kids are infected with mild disease now, you're probably not going to wait three weeks in every one of them to get your ECG. I mean, you're probably going to do it rather soon, maybe 10 days, and, and make a determination in the first two weeks. But that is not the official recommendation. And our cardiology group with our, our um, nurse practitioner team are going to come up, I think, fairly soon with some modified recommendations based on reality that we're seeing. Another great question. Yeah, it's essentially impossible to see every kid for, you know, that, I mean, we're thousands. You can't do it. It can't be done. Exactly. Okay, so again, you know, reasonable period of observation. An EKG would be helpful. And then a decision made about returning, if mild or asymptomatic disease. Yeah, I think the AP took about 10 days, and the uh, I think the Connecticut Intercollegial Sports Authority was asking for five days, and that's where the discrepancy came. Right. I, I, in my opinion, five days is too short because the, that bell-shaped curve, some of those kids may still be excreting viable virus. And so yeah. 10 days is, in my opinion, uh, much more sensible. But there are some recommendations, one, that are longer than that still. And, and I think that's becoming impractical. Yeah, I think for mild disease uh, uh, in, in the Omicron era, 10 days is the AP yeah. recommendation. I'm, a, I'm in alignment with that as yeah. opposed to the five days. I agree. Um, so we talked about the, the vaccine. I think there are a number of questions that have already been asked. Uh, let me see. The, uh, there's another one here from Larry Scherzer. Many positive cases in kids seem to be asymptomatic or have minor symptoms. Does the degree of symptom expression relate to the protective antibody response and how soon after positive COVID culture should a positive COVID, should kids be referred uh, for a vaccine or a booster? So the kind yeah, of you know, I don't know if the um, actual clinical severity of disease is directly correlated with neutralizing antibody titer. I don't think that's correct. Each individual, you know, it's very variable. But I, I don't think it's related to severity of disease. And as, as I, I mentioned, I tr um, we try not to immunize immediately after active COVID for two reasons. One, is the uh, issue of all that inflammation, still subclinical inflammation, that be there. You probably don't want to enhance that right after. But also just immunologically, you know, you know you're getting a booster, as I showed you, with natural disease. You really want to wait a period of time before you reintroduce that antigen to get the optimal booster dose. So as I mentioned, we usually wait four weeks and then immunize somebody who had COVID. It could be two weeks, that would be fine, or six weeks. You don't want to wait past 90 days. They'll no longer be immune. 
two comments and just to clarify. So the first one is, do all patients with mild COVID need to have an EKG? And then the understanding is that not everyone needs an EKG. And John, I mean, in my opinion, no. The mild or asymptomatic don't require it. It's moderate and severe. But I'm, I want to preface that is that the cardiology, sports medicine, AAP recommendations are in flux. In my opinion, the mild and asymptomatic is just not possible. There's so many of them. And if the physical exam's normal and they have no symptoms, they're going to go back to sports. I think if you're moderate or severely ill, you require a workup. Yeah. prior to going back. I would agree with that, John. Uh, uh, Dr. Bennett, I have a question for you. And um, this is from Tom Draper. The, uh, are there any drugs that you use for obese patients? To help with weight loss, I think is what the yeah, question is. Yeah, I think it's is. the implication is, and perhaps in the COVID era with the significant weight gain that some yeah. of the teenagers have had, are you using any medications? Yep. So I'm not in adolescent medicine, but my colleagues in our weight management clinic um, are using some medications, weight loss medications. Um, you know, after they're doing a medical evaluation, they're meeting with um, the psychology team in weight management, um, with nutritionists. So, um, so yes, they are using some weight loss medications and, and um, you know, adolescents who meet certain criteria. Alyssa, the other the sort of comment here is that uh, with many visits switching to Zoom, uh, we don't get a weight. And so we don't really know where mm -hmm. kids are. So that, that is the one time that, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't work because they're not coming in to see you. Any comments on that? Yes. Uh, it's a great point. And I think, um, you know, we, uh, we've been seeing all of our patients with eating disorders in person since like July of 2020 when, when rates were lower for that reason, because it, it's such critical information. I think, um, you know, asking the question uh, about in your review of systems, right, any changes in weight or shape or eating um, and asking in front of the parent because the parent may be in the background like, yes. And then if there are concerns, scheduling an in-person visit to check weight and vitals. And, and I've seen some referrals from pediatricians who I see, you know, the video visit when there was a concern brought up. And then, um, you know, the next day they come in and they get that, that, that data. So um, I think just um, screening for it, asking the, qu the question, and then bringing them in. Great, thanks. John, we have a couple more questions for you. Thank you, Dr. Bennett. Again, uh, this is about timing also. In an unvaccinated patient who becomes infected, can you clarify how soon they can they get the first dose of the vaccine? Uh, again, to me, it would be similar as the previous question. If you're unvaccinated, you get acute COVID, you'd like to be asymptomatic and not have any residua and then immunize. And usually that's a couple of weeks. Um, again, I prefer to wait four weeks because immunologically that makes more sense to me to repeat the antigen challenge. The little, if you wait a little bit, you get a better booster response. So four weeks could be a, a, an optional target. I would not wait past 90 days because that natural immunity will have waned and in general, they'll no longer be immune. So th that's the parameters that I would use. Okay. after. What about if somebody gets a first dose of the vaccine a week and a half, two weeks later, they get COVID. How about when do, should they get their booster? You know, that's a great question. And we've seen <laughs> that. And I've gotten called with that exact oh, situation. And there's no right answer. There's no data. But to me, it's exactly the same thought process. Okay, you got the first dose. You got six. You got boosted. It's like your second dose, right? And, and so you're going to want to wait a period of time to get the third booster. I probably wouldn't wait six months. As I said, I would wait between four weeks 
and 90 days to give that third dose. I don't have data to support that. That particular scenario, I've not seen data, but I think it makes common sense. Interesting uh, comments. And I recently saw a patient with near syncope as on the only presentation of COVID. I found this small study suggesting this can happen. John, can you comment? You know, I've not seen syncope, but I know neurologic um, things can happen. I mean, there are peripheral neuropathies that have been reported. Uh, there are obviously the loss of taste and smell, and that implies, um, you know, infection in, in the olfactory nerve. So I think I'm not surprised. I've not heard that specific. And then you'd want to differentiate is that neurologic or cardiac. Knowing that this is a cardiac target organism, I would be worried that syncope actually represents an arrhythmia and that it is cardiac. And, and I think that would be the more likely scenario with COVID. So you'd worry about subclinical myocarditis um, and an arrhythmia. So that, that's where I focus on that. All right, one last question, then we'll close. Uh, should, uh, should isolation start from symptoms or positive test date? There's confusing, confusing thoughts based on the CDC. It is confusing. Common sense. So if you get symptoms, everyone in the house has COVID. Patient X gets symptoms. You start counting day of symptoms, so it's 10 days. A lot of times you don't have that luxury, and no one knows what, and you get the PCR and it's positive, and that seems to be like day one, and then you count from there. So each circumstance is a little bit different. It's a great question, and we individualize the answer to that based on what happened in the house, everybody had COVID and then I got symptoms and I didn't get tested for five days. Well, then obviously it's when the symptoms started. I don't know where I was exposed and I had a cold and I got a PCR. Well, then that's the PCR is gonna be day one. So each, each situation is slightly different to answer that question. Again, thank you everyone for being here today. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And uh, I'm optimistic <laughs> my curve's gonna, we're gonna be like the UK in a couple of weeks. Let's hope for that, that's where we are. Uh, absolutely, we'll have, uh, we'll go to the pub in London, John. Uh, the, the, uh, Dr. Bennett, Dr. Schreiber, thank you very much. And again, the next uh, session is February 4th, 2022. By that time, yeah, we should be beating the heck out of this virus. And uh, please go get your booster if you haven't gotten, that's your third shot. That's what you should be getting it. It is required here at Connecticut Children's and you do need to document that as well. So please be safe, take care, keep warm, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.